0: Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I took them to a lab. I had them analyzed. Yeah, that's a strange thing to do. Not as strange as the results. The guy at the lab had trouble identifying them. He finally came to the conclusion that they were definitely not human.
1: Oh, (laughs) very good.
0: Not human, Seth. In fact, very likely insect hairs.
1: A scientist working on teleportation accidentally combines his DNA with that of a housefly. Listen as we chat about what newborns really look like, how talent can be sexy, and creatures that are in our eyebrows right now. Be afraid, be very afraid, as we find out if 1986's The Fly stands the test of time.
0: Test of time, James and Allen have to say, Do the
1: movies you love still hold up today? James says, gladiator with the glut. Alan says, as a father, blah blah. It's the test of time, James and Alan after say. Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time, James and Alan have to say. Do the movies you love still hold up today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Test of Time, the podcast where we look at old movies, well, not really old, but at least 15 years, and we find out if they still stand the test of time. I'm James Brief. Joining me, as always, is my buddy and pal, the director of these podcasts, Alan Noah. Hi, that's me. How are you doing, James? I'm very good. I'm very good. I, You know, I... I I love seeing Jeff Goldblum, or we're going to talk about Jeff Goldblum later today, but uh, he he just puts you in in a mood, Jeff Goldblum. You know what? I
0: think you could even say that Jeff Goldblum is a mood. He is a vibe. And I was really excited to watch this movie because I feel like I love Jeff Goldblum, but I've only seen him in a handful of movies, you know, like Jurassic Park. He was in The Big Chill, which we watched for the podcast. I can't think of anything else off the top of my head.
1: Uh, No, I think that's it.
0: Okay. But yeah, so, and, and I saw that uh, this movie was on max and, uh, you know, we're doing three spooky movies this, uh, this October. Last week we did, I Know What You Did Last Summer, which was from the 90s. And this week we're doing The Fly from the 80s. Next week we have a Halloween classic from the 70s. So this will be a fun one to talk about. But offline, when we have not been recording, you have been asking me Al, have you watched The Flash yet? Al, did you watch The Flash yet? Al, have you seen The Flash yet? And James, I finally watched The Flash, speaking of movies that are streaming on Max, and I figured you'd, you'd want to talk about that a little bit before we get into The Fly
1: uh yeah i was uh excited for this film when it was first announced i might be in the minority it doesn't really matter since it won't uh, be a thing in the future but i liked Ezra miller as the the flash uh you know again let's get out of the way there were some uh i guess these are all allegations at this point but there was a lot of controversy of of, over this actor and then of course the. DC uh, movie cinematic universe that kind of got shuffled when uh, the old regime was kind of shuffled out that whole uh, Zack Snyder was originally kind of the Kevin Feige of that uh, of that universe and they've decided to switch gears James Gunn is gonna do it and yeah almost all of the DC characters that we've seen in the live-action films not all of them though strangely but yeah. almost all of them are gonna be uh, reset and you know, they announce this before the release of The Flash and also before the release of Aquaman, uh, the, the sequel, I think it's Aquaman colon The, the Lost Kingdom. I think uh, so. The whole point of these films is that like a comic book, uh, there's always in next issue and each movie or film is kind of a, it's a stepping stone in a larger story. So when they really tell you that, yeah, that this film uh, is not part of a continuing story, even if it does end on some kind of cliff note or whatever, um It's a unique situation for for a film.
0: Right. And I agree with you. I liked Ezra Miller in Justice League. I also just liked Ezra Miller in general before all of the crazy shit that they were doing and all of the arrests. And if you read some of those stories, they are really fucked up. Some of these allegations are really bizarre and really disturbing and almost sad in a way but before all of that hit there was an interview with ezra miller and a profile of ezra miller in playboy back when playboy was in print so i'm going back a few years and i was like ezra miller just a really cool fascinating actor and then all of the horrible stories came out and it was like uh, i don't know that i love this person But let's talk about the movie itself, just The Flash on its own. And it is a thing that every time you watch a superhero movie nowadays, I think to myself, why didn't this superhero put any babies in microwaves? And finally, we have a movie where the superhero does that. First scene, The Flash puts a baby in a microwave. What the fuck was that? I mean, seriously, I was watching it. I'm like, why the fuck did he just put a baby in a fucking microwave?
1: I think they were going for kind of hijinks in there. They didn't totally explain it, but there was a scene where the babies are falling out of a hospital, some explosion, and he's got to catch these babies before they hit the ground. And yes, he puts one of them in a microwave. And he catches uh, like half a dozen of them in like a hospital gurney. he doesn't want to like catch them because he's going almost the speed of light, and then he'll kind of break them in half. so he weirdly puts them in all these safe positions. i didn't have a problem with the baby in the microwave. I will say that the cGI of these babies was horrible
0: atrocious it was, it was
1: atrocious yeah. and i see a lot of babies and babies are a lot different looking than they always uh, present them on television sure and most babies you see on tv when uh, they give birth and the the mom is cradling the baby in, in the bed those are usually uh preemies that are like two or three months old Like these are, and they look like newborns. Newborn babies, they have pimples all over them. There's stuff on them. They're weird looking. Yeah. And yes, sometimes their heads are, you know, pretty cone shaped. Yeah. Yeah. There's all this stuff. And, it might be hard to depict the baby as CGI. I just feel like it's one of those things where they should have seen this and just gone, no, we're not going to do it. Or just show the babies wrapped up in uh, in their little swaddles or something. Yeah, you're
0: you're right. And they do sort of say something like that. There's a throwaway line about, oh, he can't touch the babies, but he still does kind of touch them when he puts the baby into the microwave. Was it true detective when there was like a, a really fucked up scene where someone who is really high on meth or some drug or was in a cult or something I'm butchering the story forgive me but like the really horrible fucked up bad guy puts a baby in a microwave and it's just like the most disturbing scene but like yeah i get it he's saving the babies but putting a fucking baby in a fucking microwave is just really Really weird and an off-putting way to start the movie, but that's one small critique I have of this movie. I could go further, but I kind of want to hear what your sort of overall impression of the movie was first before I go into it.
1: There were a lot of things I really liked in this film. I thought that the Supergirl actress is it Sasha kaye or Cali? I, I I don't have know no how to pronounce. Idea. I thought she was fantastic. I kind of kept thinking damn it this is one of those uh actresses that should get such a big break but no one's gonna see this film and uh i thought michael keaton was great i didn't think that all the plot stuff that happened with him was that great yeah um the homage to all the multiverse uh, uh, DC things. I thought it was uh, quite clever. I just wish it actually had more of a point. What I'm referring to is there's a scene when all the universes come together and you see Christopher Reeve as Superman and you see Adam West as Batman and you see all these different uh, iterations of the DC multiverse. And I thought it was neat, but there was zero point to it.
0: I disagree. There was one point to it. Oh, nostalgia? kind of but more than that the way i would describe this movie it's a crass term and it's not going to offend you i'm sure james i apologize to any listeners if it offends but this entire movie in general but specifically that scene is a hand job it's a hand job for the nerdiest nerds out there and i say this as a nerd but I'm picturing comic book guy from The Simpsons. Somebody who is obsessed with every comic book movie and every comic book story and every story about a comic book movie that didn't actually get made. They show Nicolas Cage as Superman for 17 minutes. It's all a hand job. It is a hand job for the nerds. And it's saying, Hey, hey, we know you're going to love this. We know you're going to love it. You're just jerking off the nerd, I'm sorry
1: for being crass, but that's what it's for. But again, I didn't think that was bad. I thought Spider-Man did an amazing job bringing in Willem Dafoe and and Alfred Molina, and everyone was happy. They wrote it well. Yeah, I just thought there was no stake. Obviously, you couldn't have Christopher Reeve really interact with uh, with anything. Uh, they actually, uh, at least, had George Clooney's uh, Bruce Wayne, uh, Batman, do something. No, they didn't. It. No, no. I'm saying, I'm saying he, he actually interacted. I'm saying it actually interacts. I'm saying there was no. nothing... Nothing to this, like I agree with you, you know, it was, it was just kind of a you know fan service. Is it, you call a hand job? You know, <laughs> sure. It, although it's got a fan service, I just thought there was no payoff to it. You know, putting Alfred Molina in Spider Man is fan service, but they did it well. Well, no, so, they they incorporated it
0: into the story exactly. Also, I watched that Spider Man movie with my son Eli. He had never seen any of the Tobey Maguire movies or any of the Andrew Garfield movies. It doesn't matter. If you've only seen the Tom Holland Spider-Man movies, it's fine. You know, if you've watched the other movies, sure, there's a little more context. I never saw the Andrew Garfield movies. I only saw the first two Tobey Maguire movies. It doesn't matter. It's fine. You can come in fresh. For The Flash, you really had to know... Michael Keaton's Batman, you had to know that George Clooney was also Batman, they didn't have Val Kilmer in there, which makes sense because of the man's health issues and everything. Also you need to know that Nicolas Cage was supposed to be Superman, but then he wasn't Superman you need to know this whole story. Also, you need to remember that Ben Affleck used to be Batman and that's the Batman that Ezra Miller knows and it's not Robert Pattinson because Robert Pattinson is the new Batman, but this Batman isn't
1: in this movie. The other Batman is... It's so goddamn confusing. I think you're being overly critical on this part. I actually disagree entirely with what you just said. Really? I think, uh, first of all, I think you do get a totally different experience from the Spider-Man films if you had seen them. This Spider-Man No Way Home is a complete redemption. It's a closure arc of Doc Ock and even the Green Goblin. Ned, the best friend, he says, did you have a best friend in your world? And he goes, yes, he died in my arms. And that's Spider-Man 3. And I definitely think there's more weight to that. I do not think for a second you needed to know the backstory about Nicolas Cage. I don't know if the audience uh, knows that you're being completely, ridiculously facetious. It's not 17 <laughs> minutes. I'm sorry. It's, it's, like, it's 16 it's, and a it's, half. It's like 30 seconds, which is long. It's longer than you gave any of the other ones, which is weird because no one knows that Nicolas Cage was supposed to be uh, Superman. So I, I agree there. But I don't think you needed to know any of those things, that Michael Keaton was there, that Val Kilmer wasn't. Um The one thing you did leave off that I thought you were getting to was that they put a lot of emphasis on the plot of Man of Steel. And that you had to know, like, how Superman was around, but Zod had come down and this universe. His pod was intercepted. Yeah. That's the part I thought was... uh, all right, I remembered all that, but uh, you know, th- even Marvel doesn't make very specific things there, or they would like you know give you hints uh, or a flashback on a, com- of a security cameras or something.
0: Right? Um, we, they just needed to get the word codex in
1: there one more time. Right. Right. Now, here's my big problem with this film, and I've said this about comic book films uh, in the past. I think there is zero excuse for a comic book film to have a bad story, bad actors. You can't uh, figure out what, to, what your actor's gonna do off camera that might mess up your film. All that stuff's out of your hand, sure. hands. Sure. But um, you have a hundred years in some of these cases of stories, just pick. We've already vetted for you the best ones. Use those. This movie is based on a really uh, well-respected, regarded uh, story, and that's called The Flashpoint Paradox. If you want to see a pretty good version of this uh, movie, once again, the DC animated cinematic universe is really good, and it's just called The Flashpoint Paradox. There's a really great lesson in The Flashpoint Paradox, and Barry even has a good idea in this film. He wants to save his mom. He tries to do it in the least butterfly effect possible, but in the end, he learns he can't uh, change uh, the time or it has too much ramifications. And he makes the horrible sacrifice that, yeah, for the universe, my mom did have to die. And uh, in this film, he doesn't learn the lesson. He, he makes it so his mom dies, but then he changes one more thing so his dad in the future won't be uh, sent to jail. And it's like, what the fuck did you just do? You just changed it again and there's no lesson with the whole time travel changing things
0: there are a lot of references in the flash to back to the future and the air quotes joke and really air quotes because it's not fucking funny is that in this other universe eric stoltz plays marty mcfly again that's a hand job for the nerds who know that in our universe eric stoltz was marty mcfly but you know michael j fox got the got the job and eric stoltz was fired it's a joke for us But they really beat that joke to death in The Flash. I didn't think it was funny. Also, though, they are referencing Back to the Future Part 2. And they're really kind of calling out that scene in Part 2 when Doc explains to Marty about the timelines. And how when Marty got that almanac and then Biff went back in time, everything was ruined. And when Doc explains that in Back to the Future Part 2... It makes perfect sense, there's a really clear visual on the chalkboard, you get it. In The Flash, though, they sort of conflate time travel with multiverse, and they sort of try to explain it with the whole spaghetti analogy. It didn't make any fucking sense to me At all, I thought that those two things were completely muddied. Also, why the fuck do the Batmen in this movie know all about the multiverse? Because first, it's Ben Affleck explaining why you can't mess with the multiverse. Then it's Michael Keaton explaining all about the multiverse. How the fuck do these dudes know what the multiverse is? When Doc explains time travel, okay, sure, I get it. He's an authority.
1: Uh, Because in the original Snyderverse... If you remember Batman v Superman: Call and Dawn of Justice, Uh there's some uh, the parts where the Flash suddenly appears to Bruce Wayne and says, "You have to save Lois Lane." This is kind of just totally scrapped in Justice League, and they don't go back to it. But it was supposed to be a whole thing with multiverses, so I think that might have been a remnant from uh, from that time. They didn't take it out, but Ben Affleck's Batman is supposed to uh, he's supposed to know about it. I didn't understand why um, Michael Keaton's Batman does know all this sci-fi stuff because Michael Keaton's Batman universe is very grounded in reality. There's right. almost zero science fiction in there. Yeah. Um, I actually disagree. I thought that the spaghetti uh, analogy that they used, I thought that was clever. I thought it was them saying, you know, when you time travel, you change everything. You know, no one knows anything about time travel. So it's fair enough to say it. Fair But time travel is different from the multiverse.
0: And if you want to show how they are connected, which they did a fantastic job of in Loki season one, I don't know if you watch that, but those two things aren't the same. And in The Flash, they're kind of like, well, they're not the same, but also... And they kind of sort of are, let's not talk about it anymore. Like, well, I've just seen so many other multiverse movies that have done it better, like Spider-Man, like Spider-Verse, like everything everywhere all at once. Even uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which was a movie that had its flaws, they explain what the multiverse is in a much more clear, understandable way. I just didn't get what the batmen were saying in the flash
1: i think time travel is completely about multiverses i think had they used that term back in uh 1989 when back to the future 2 came out it could have been referred to as there are multiverses in in the back to the future world like you're right they could have explained it better i think time travel easily makes uh, the different universes and they could just say that's all time travel is you're just jumping back and forth in different universes at different times sure but you're right they didn't say that i I feel like had this film really been part of a franchise that was beloved that was really well crafted and I think they probably might have polished this more it really had no chance of being successful
0: when I turned this movie off I was like well I know why it bombed there were other external factors too but who is this movie for I think they were really catering to the super hardcore nerd and yeah you can give those guys a hand job, but that's a small portion of the population But let's talk about The Fly, because this was a movie that I really wanted to talk about, and I'd never seen it before. Had you seen it?
1: I've seen this before. Uh, I'd seen it as a kid. Totally terrifying when I was a kid. Really? Oh, absolutely. Very scary film. But yeah, I saw it, and I hadn't seen this film in easily 30 years.
0: I watched this movie with Eli, who is 13. He found it incredibly boring. He was not at all scared. I'm just bringing that up as a reference point. If you were under 10, you had a different reaction. It was a different time. And he was very bored by it. Well, let's give our listeners a recap of the movie for
1: anyone who hasn't seen it in a while. Yeah, sure. Uh, This movie is about a scientist named Seth Brundle, played by Jeff Goldblum, who constructs a teleportation device. When he tests it on himself, a housefly makes its way into the telepod, and the device's computer merges Seth with the fly at a cellular genetic level. At first, Seth gains strength and agility he's never had before, and Seth's girlfriend Ronnie, a journalist who wants to write a book about Seth's invention, begins to notice some disturbing changes to her lover. Seth grows wiry hair from his back. He develops a taste for sugar, he's more aggressive, and he starts clinging to walls. Worse, Ronnie discovers that she's pregnant, with Seth's baby. She goes for an abortion, but Seth kidnaps her before the procedure. He wants to merge with Ronnie and their unborn baby, creating the ultimate family. And it's up to Ronnie and her ex-boyfriend Stathis to stop this hybrid creature, now known as Brundlefly. Right. So I don't need to ask you if this movie
0: was a hit because I know that there was a sequel or sequels.
1: I forget. Uh, there was a sequel. Uh, this film, I remembered as a kid, this film is a remake of a film from the 50s. Right. Um, and this film uh, was budgeted. I've seen anywhere but from $9 million, I saw $15 million, And it opened on August 15th, 1986. It wound up uh, grossing $40 million domestically, $60 million worldwide. So anywhere from six and a half times its budget. So it did really well. Or four times its budget. So, you know, huge, huge hit. This was from uh, director David Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of directors that were uh, offered this film, but uh, he's done some weirder films. Uh, Scanners and, and Total Recall, right? Um, no, Total Recall was uh, Paul Verhoeven. Or oh, I think he was... Uh, he was uh, going uh, to do Total yeah, Recall. I yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Right, that. right, right. Yeah. And uh, this film was uh, Jeff Goldblum, who was not the first choice uh, to be played. Ironically, a person we were just talking about, Michael Keaton, was going to be put in this role, which is also ironic because when Michael Keaton was cast as Batman, they were like, no, he's a comedic actor. This is a terrible choice. And this is not a comedic film. So it would have been very, I think Michael Keaton could have done a very good job in this too. Crazy Michael Keaton is, uh, he's fun. Sure um but uh yeah this film was a huge hit uh the sequel was not a huge hit that that was a big flop uh do you know who the star of uh the fly the fly 2 is I thought it was uh,
0: Stathis was the only one who who came back.
1: Oh uh, no! It stars um, Brundle's child. Uh, oh right. Uh, oh, is that, uh, is that Eric Stoltz? Yes, it is. Okay, it's Eric right. So yeah, I think that's interesting. Like Eric Stoltz, he's he, he's the kind of guy who's he's touched upon glory. Like he was almost Marty McFly. He's almost in the huge the the fly hit. Both have fly in it. Whoa! Uh, oh, that's weird. That is weird. Yeah. One thing I like about this film. It gets right to the point with the very first line of this film. It opens at a cocktail party, and Jeff Goldblum's character, uh, Seth Brundle, he meets Gina Davis' character and says, Do you want to go to my apartment? I want to show you something amazing.
0: Right, he says he has an invention that's going to change the world. And while I like that the movie gets right into it, it is not at all clear when the movie starts who these people are, where they are, where they're talking. Eventually you get that he is a scientist and she is a journalist and they are at an event where journalists meet scientists and the scientists talk to the journalists about their inventions. That is not at all clear when the movie starts. I mean, I'm okay with a movie that throws you in and you kind of have to figure it out. It was just confusing and odd and it really could have given you a little bit of an indication of where they were and who they were and why they were talking with, like, a shot of the sign, you know, scientists meet the journalists expo 1986, something that's more clever than what I just said, but something like that. So you just get the frame of reference because then she's like, Oh, well, you're just hitting on me. You're just giving me a line. And he's like, No, I'm not. It's like, Well, where are they? Are they at a bar? Are they at a cocktail party? Are they at an art gallery opening and maybe it is a line, I I was just thrown by the abruptness of the beginning, even though I did appreciate the fact that, yeah, then they get to the lab and they're right into the whole teleportation thing. So that worked for me. But just like that first few
1: minutes, I thought was confusing. So yeah, I understand that critique. Um, But something I like about this character is he's a weirdo yes. and you know, played by Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, uh, you know, this is a, a weird guy playing a, a weird role. There's something subtle, I call it the Marge Simpson wardrobe. Um, do you notice when he opens his uh, his dresser, he has like the same clothing like multiple times right Um, it was once a Seinfeld joke like I just want to buy 365 pairs of underwear so I'm gonna have to do laundry once a year that there's a little practicality to that uh, even if it's a joke but when someone has 30 of the same shirt and like seven pairs of the identical shoe there's something kind of a little weird I, I would imagine Isn't that a thing that Einstein did? Or maybe that's
0: like an urban legend about Einstein. I'm not like an authority on him, but that he wore the same clothes over and over again. So he never had to think about what he was going to wear because he had more important things to think about. So if every outfit was the same, he just didn't have to spend
1: time thinking about it. That might be true. That might be true for this character as well. But he didn't say it like that. And he is kind of weird. The guy did invent a teleportation device in his home without anyone noticing. But
0: is it his home or is it the lab and he lives there? Like, again, it's not really clear and maybe it doesn't really matter. He's funded by board doc, maybe is that the name of the company
1: yeah and that's actually interestingly like what the i think the sequel is is about like the evil corporation taking this device uh which i i do love that the film doesn't go into this at all not only is this a device that will change the world the amount of industries that will be changed forever i mean you could live in in the rocky mountains and work in manhattan like there's no more car accidents roads don't even need to exist anymore there's corporations that would Kill anyone for this invention. And you know, they, they don't go into that at all. Uh, I, I do kind of appreciate that. And again, there's room for that in a sequel. I don't know if the sequel is any good. I just know it was a flop. But this film and other films from the 80s really made me think that when you lived in New York City, it was so easy to just live in one of these like abandoned warehouse lofts that, like, they always have these like cargo elevators that open up into the apartment and they're like two stories and. These things did exist. And I think in the '80s, certainly in like the meatpacking district, which today is like the hottest clubs, but was you know, meatpacking and was shitty back then. I always just thought it was fascinating that these apartments today. I mean, that that's ten thousand dollar apartment that he's in right now. You mean ten thousand dollars a month? Yeah, right, exactly, ten thousand a month. Right. Also, you said New York.
0: They don't ever say where this movie takes place, but I was reading that. By, like, the landmarks, you can see the CN Tower, and they filmed it in Canada. You can identify it as Toronto if you're really paying attention.
1: Yeah, but that's like Jackie Chan, Rumble in the Bronx. You could see the mountains of Vancouver in the background. (laughs) But, uh... Right. You know, it doesn't matter where they filmed it. That's interesting that they never mention it's New York, and it certainly could be Toronto. But, uh... I think it's implied. It's, uh, you know, it's one of these major New York, Chicago kind of, you know, metropolitan areas. Yes, definitely. So one thing that kind of threw me
0: about the movie and the characters was the way that Ronnie falls for Seth. I do not understand the attraction at all. And the reason that Gina Davis was cast in this movie is because they couldn't find the leading lady. They were having a hard time. And Jeff Goldblum suggested Gina Davis. And Gina Davis was, at the time, his real life girlfriend. To be clear, I love Gina Davis. I think she should be in way more movies. I love seeing her in things. And she's great in this movie specifically. But I just don't understand her infatuation with Seth. She just like falls for him instantly. And it's like why because to your point he is a fucking weirdo and yes he's brilliant and yes he has created this amazing teleportation device but that doesn't mean that you instantly fall in love with the person and i appreciate that the movie moves quickly in a lot of its mechanics and a lot of the plot things but that was just one thing that i was like why why is she in love with him
1: I don't get why she falls for him. That's fair. But there is a scene uh, halfway through the film. I totally forgot about this uh, aspect of the film that before he turns into a grotesque fly, he's actually like a superhuman and he's, he's got uh, almost like Peter Parker. He's got all the good powers of an insect. He's super strong. Right. Jeff Goldblum has like a 12 pack and he's doing these sit-ups and he's doing all these acrobatic things. And there's a really interesting uh, scene where Gia David just looks at him as he's like shirt List, like probably oiled up and doing all these sit-ups and she just basically jumps him right that i understand why she does that sure I don't of course and why she first uh, gets with him that that's fair right um but then again there is something about he really did invent a teleportation device that's pretty sexy um <laughs> I, I do think so i mean I think a man or a woman displaying a talent I think is very attractive. I think there is a reason why women, and men too, playing the guitar is just very attractive, being on stage. I, I find the singers, that if they can play the guitar and sing, I find that more attractive. I just find any talents attractive. His talent, what he did, I, I, f- I would find very, uh, very sexy, but they don't uh, make that clear. And also, he's like weird Jeff Blum who then turns into like you know an Adonis uh, muscular guy right I mean they don't show him shirtless in the beginning but I would imagine that's not the body he had in the beginning and you just never knew it yeah I mean and I think the real reason of why
0: they fall in love so quickly is because shut up they need to be a couple now so whatever I, I feel like I just have to address the elephant in the room which is that I was expecting this movie to be more like the Simpsons parody from an early Treehouse of Horror, which apparently was more parodying the 1950s movie where Bart and a housefly go into the teleportation device and then you have a tiny fly-sized Bart and then a regular-sized Bart body with the fly head. Apparently, that's what was in the 1950s version and they did not want to do that for this remake. They wanted it to be a slow metamorph. It's just, I think that makes sense. I understand that creative decision. I was just kind of thrown because so many of my pop cultural touch points come from The Simpsons and when something deviates from that, it does kind of throw me for a loop. That's just because I was raised on The Simpsons.
1: Oh, yeah, that's fair. And I feel like, I don't know if I've ever seen the 1950s one or if I've seen a clip of it, but it does look like uh, a human with like, a well-designed, high-quality, like, fly head. Right. And that, that's what he's wearing. When Brundle figures out what happened, you know, he goes, he you know, like, why is he acting like this? Why are you getting these hairs on his back? And he goes back to the computer and explains to him what happened. It just says um, the fusion happened at the cellular molecular genetic level. That's it. We don't need much more than that. They don't need much CGI. I think there's like a little image of like a double helix kind of spinning. That's it. Um, Something that used to really bother me... In movies like this and war games, I hated when you would kind of type in a regular English language question. That's not how computers talk. Right, there's programming languages and all that. Right, right. However, now that uh, we're recording this in 2023, things like ChatGPT is out, and you can talk exactly like that. Or even for a number of years now, Siri and Alexa. Uh, in a roundabout way, now I could believe it a little bit. Not in 1986, but... It's not weird to me to see someone talking to a computer like that.
0: Right. And I think in terms of the interactions with the computer, if they made this movie today, they would say that the AI model in the computer fused the DNA of the human with the fly because the AI was thrown by this superfluous dna or something 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 and in the movie they just say the computer didn't know what to do and the computer merged the genetic material whatever now they would just say ai like you would you would need those two letters in that throwaway exposition sentence and then everyone in the
1: audience would say okay You're exactly right. That's exactly how they would do this. I would bet strongly this film will be remade again. Uh, I think it's a pretty simple concept and it could be done very well. And there's a lot of places to go with it. Like I said, the corporations, the the evil behind it, uh, the sympathy you can have for the character. I think they will make a remake of this film someday. I think one thing that kind of bothers me
0: about this movie, just from a plot mechanic point of view, is the way that the fly just accidentally goes into the telepod. I feel like it should have been more because Seth was careless. And when he goes into the telepod at that moment, he's drunk and he's upset because Ronnie left and he thinks that Ronnie's getting back together with her ex. And so he's not acting rationally But that doesn't really affect that the fly went in and he didn't notice it. So I just feel like there should have been something that's more connected to Seth and his flaws and his mistakes that allowed him to not see the fly or allowed him to not care about it or something. And I mean, I think it's fine for a series of events to be caused by a random accident. That's okay. But I just felt like there was something interesting that they could have done that they didn't. Again, I think maybe because of expediency, because they wanted this movie to be quick and moving, which again, isn't a bad thing. But I do feel like they left certain things on the table. That was
1: chief among them, I think. I thought it was actually more of just total randomness that A Fly went in there. It was enough of a plot point to me because you can't think about too much. Because there's bacteria all over us, too. And sure, there's all these old dust mites that are, you know, probably or I don't know, dust mites. So, there's some kind of creatures that are in our eyebrows, like right now. And you know, sure, all those, we're not merging with them. So, again, it will be a throwaway line that, uh, oh, it filters out things that are, uh, you know, less than a cell thick, uh, you know, so it discounts all the bacteria and stuff, sure. But, but yeah, a housefly fly does get in by accident. But, you know, speaking of uh, the house fly, yeah, something about this film we have to discuss is the special effects Uh, Mm -hmm. rather more than special effects there aren't really many special effects I'd say it's more the makeup in this film yeah there's one of his first experiments when he tries to teleport a baboon and it comes out inside out right all practical effects probably they would have done CGI if they'd done today but they couldn't 1985-86 so there's a great scene, I thought, where uh, Seth, when he's uh, kind of superpowered, he challenges this guy in a uh, in a bar to an arm wrestling match. And he winds up uh, with an open fracture. It's a gruesome, gruesome fracture. And then, and then, of course, there's the fly and all of its juices it secretes and uh, melting limbs and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I thought that the
0: special effects in this movie were fine. And that sounds like I'm being condescending and a prick. I I don't mean to be. I just mean that looking at this movie today in 2023, it's from 1986. I was expecting it to maybe be terrible, you know, like really shitty rubber looking fly masks and stuff like that. And it's not. It looks pretty damn good. It's very dark and a lot of the effects are very quick and sort of... Easy, you know, like when the bone pops out of the guy's hand in the arm wrestling thing, it's a very fast shot. When Brundlefly is excreting his acid to digest things, it's just kind of like white gloop. So, I mean, is that really hard? When he himself is changing, when like the parts of his body are falling off, that looks pretty damn cool. Uh, sidebar, but something I can kind of relate to. I don't think I told you this, but I lost a couple of toenails this summer. I don't think I told you that, did I?
1: No, you didn't mention it.
0: Oh, okay. I did some races and uh I think I was wearing some tight shoes and uh I lost two toenails, which really, really grossed out the kids, which was the uh the fringe benefit of that. Also at the at the end of the movie when he really, really transforms, his human body like falls off like a husk, and there's just this insect creature underneath. It's pretty damn cool looking. It doesn't blow me away, but
1: it also doesn't look like shit for something that's you know so old. Um, It won the Oscar for best makeup. I I thought it was fantastic. I think that CGI would have made it a lot cleaner. I feel like it would have been more of a ah, that's exactly what I thought a half human, half fly was. And this guy never turns into a fly. They didn't have the ability to do that. But uh, when they redo it, they're gonna make a full CGI. Is gonna be a whole house fly closer to the nineteen fifty. Uh, version, but uh, I thought this was awesome. I, I thought that there was one scene I thought was really scary. It was um, where uh, Ronnie uh, she finds out she's pregnant and she's horrified because she thinks it must be Seth's baby and of course this is Seth with the altered uh, DNA which means his sperm is altered which means she's carrying like a half human half fly in her or I guess a quarter fly right Uh, I guess yeah yeah. but um, there's a scene where uh, she delivers the baby and she's terrified and then all the doctors and nurses are freaking out by what comes out of the birth canal and she pulls out a huge maggot apparently that's a scene in, in The Fly 2, where it, the baby does come out in a maggot form, but it, there's like a human inside of it. Right. I did read that in The Fly 2,
0: he's born as a regular boy who grows up to be Eric Stoltz and then starts turning into a fly. And then Gina Davis wanted to make a, another sequel that would have ignored The Fly 2, and she gives birth to twins, and then they turn into. Uh, fly-like creatures. That was going to be called Flies, which okay, that's a pretty good title. Um, And that didn't happen. Oh, and then also apparently for this movie, The Fly, there were a bunch of alternate endings and one of them was she gives birth to a baby and no no it wasn't Seth's baby it was Stathis's baby it's just a regular healthy baby and then there's another version where she gives birth to a baby and it's kind of like a butterfly but it's beautiful and it's okay and all of those endings just kind of threw test audiences and so they just went with the more ambiguous Seth dies The end.
1: Yeah, and there was also another ending where she ends up with uh, Stathis. She's, like, married to him. It's a year later. And people didn't like that ending because, you know, what the fuck? Like... It's not a good ending. Like right. I like that he saves her. He doesn't need to win her back. He wasn't. That's not the the point. We weren't rooting for Stathis to get her back. I was happy to see Stathis as the hero because I saw him and I was like, "Oh, this guy's dead." Yes, I had that exact same
0: reaction. I'm like, "This guy gonna die bad." And then when when Seth starts like regurgitating the acid and destroys his foot and his hand, I was like, "Okay, well, this guy's like gonna die the most horrible death ever." But no, no. He lives, and he kind of saves the day. Yay, Stathis? No, we hate Stathis. He's still a a scumbag. But him saving the day is a twist that is nice. I appreciated that. It's not all
1: black and white. Really, Al? He has his hand and his foot melted off, and he still takes the time to save Ronnie, and still you call him a scumbag? Yeah, he was a real fucking asshole the entire rest of the movie to Ronnie. That's not a redemption?
0: I appreciate that he saved the day, but I'm not just going to forgive all the the shitty uh, things he did as editor in chief of that publication.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, he didn't believe her story at the very beginning, so he, he deserves to have his arm and leg. Then no, he was going
0: to run the story to spite her.
1: Oh yeah, he should have had. Uh, he should have aimed at his groin too, right, Al?
0: I didn't say that. You said that. I was happy with him losing his hand in his Oh, foot. okay.
1: So it wasn't groin losable, but it was, was it face, Lou? Because he almost had his face melted off. I, I think the
0: fact that he had that fear in him is fine. Okay. I'm okay with All that. Right. Okay. I think that is fair. Uh, I think he redeemed himself at the end. Fine. But James, let me ask you about The Fly in general, the 1986 version, of course. Do you think this movie
1: stands the test of time? Um, I think there are some problems with the film. Uh, you bring up some problems that I didn't think were too bad. But overall, uh, I thought the film was very good. I, I thought it was a tight 92-minute film. Thank goodness this movie wasn't made in 1990 because they would have done some bad CGI with the fly at the end. They cast well. They got Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum. These guys are awesome. Yeah. Uh, The guy who was, uh, Stathis, was, he was perfectly fine too. David Cronenberg was great the design of those pods are so cool the way the pods open i just think that it's such a really cool design i think it, you make a lot of points of like a couple throwaway lines would have been nice to explain why she's into him maybe they knew each other oh nice to see you again i haven't seen you since college and oh you look better than you did uh, 10 years ago yeah there you go that's it so right. they have a backstory together um they obviously don't include any of the outside world stuff which uh i think you could have you know go to the police go let's bring you to a hospital, Seth, Uh, which they would have done nothing. But uh, there's only like four actors in the film, really, of note. I found this film to be scary. I can see where people wouldn't. And I do think The Fly stands the test of time. I think this film is ripe for a remake. And I think there's a lot more you could do with this. Uh, You could even gender reverse it because this is not about a man. It's about the character and how sad it is. Reference again to Jeff Goldblum. You didn't think whether or not you could. You should have thought about whether you should. And th- there's a lot of cool stuff in this film. So I liked it. Uh, for me, The Fly, 1986, stands the test of time. What do you think, Al? Does it stand the test of time?
0: So as you're sort of talking about like what it's about and it doesn't matter if it's a man, what Cronenberg said was that it's really about aging and dying, getting sick. And a lot of people at the time thought that this movie was about AIDS because it came out in 1986 and people saw certain components of Seth's deteriorating physical condition to be representative of people who are dying of AIDS. And Cronenberg said, you know, that wasn't my intention. It was kind of more about Aging and disease and dying sort of in general. But yeah, I get it. I understand why people would think that. There's certainly parallels. Uh, It was important to Cronenberg that when Seth discover a lot of these things, he be in the bathroom. That he was looking in the mirror. And then he sees things in his reflection that are wrong. And that's where I think his teeth start falling out. And maybe his fingernails too. I forget. But that's where a lot of people in real life... That's where they notice that something is wrong and that they're sick is when they're in the bathroom and they they see something in the mirror that concerns them. So there are these real parallels to the process of aging and getting sick and dying. And Seth does go through the five stages, you know, there's um, denial, uh, anger, bargaining, um, fear, Acceptance? Did I switch a couple of those?
1: Uh, it's written in different orders
0: sometimes. Okay. But he goes through the five stages. And at first he doesn't believe it. And then, you know, he gets angry and he's, there's bargaining, all of it. And I think it does work as an analogy for coming to terms with his mortality. The last thing he does is he grabs the shotgun and holds it to his head. He can't speak at that point because he is a horrifically hideous creature, but he's telling Ronnie... To kill him, he just needs to die. And, you know, at that point, obviously, that is acceptance, right? He has accepted his fate. And I think it does work as a parable. And I don't know that it works as a horror movie, like, in the conventional sense of what that means. In terms of, there's a monster on the loose, and he kills a whole bunch of people, and you watch the bodies fly, and the body count rises. It's not that kind of movie. I still think it's disturbing and unsettling, even though I wouldn't say it was scary to me. I think it was affecting. Um, So I will say that the movie does stand the test of time. I... I didn't love all of it. I I think it really could have slowed down at a few parts. And instead of being whatever it was, 92 minutes, it could have been 102 minutes and still been a quick movie. But given a little bit more time to certain things, I think that would have helped the movie. But um, I really just love watching Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. So that
1: definitely helped my enjoyment of the movie. Oh, yeah, watching Jeff Goldblum get more and more crazy is fantastic. You're right, this is not a horror film. This is more of a thriller that I think has scary scenes in it. And that line when he says to her, I'm scared. That's very interesting, he said, about aging. There's that moment when we all look in the mirror and you realize, oh, you know, well, look at that. I am now old version of me, and you know I'm I'm arguing against myself
0: here but I do think that is what good horror does a really good horror movie uses the genre to say something about real life. Like the old zombie movies, Night of the Living Dead was about racism and, you know, this fear of black people moving into the white suburbs and all this stuff. It's really about the zombies, but no, what it's really about is this other social commentary. And so I think that does work for this movie as a horror movie. One last thing I just have to mention— the tagline for this movie, did you see what the tagline was? Yeah, I know what the tagline for this film. I didn't realize it was from this film. Exactly. That was my point. Be afraid. Be very afraid is just like a thing that everyone knows and has heard and has said. But I didn't realize. You didn't realize. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, it's from this movie. Um, Ronnie says it to... The woman that uh, Seth picks up at the bar after he breaks the guy's arm, and he just wants to have sex with someone, and Ronnie has left him, so he picks up this woman. Ronnie comes in and intercepts, and she says, be afraid, be very afraid. Apparently, that line was pitched by one of this movie's producers, who's Mel Brooks. Did you see that?
1: I saw that Mel Brooks was uh, was a producer. Mel Brooks, of course, being the the Spaceballs uh uh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, all of these comedies. He didn't have his name in the credits because he didn't want it there. And apparently, he was also a producer on The Elephant Man, which also I believe didn't have his name in the credits because he just was happy to do behind the scenes work and help out and get the movie made. But he knew if his name was in the credits, people would be confused because he was such an icon in the comedy world. You hope that the audience will have enough understanding of oh well this guy is known for comedies but that doesn't mean he can't do dramas but you know they have to be careful with the marketing and uh you know that that's an important thing so i get it but i just found that really really interesting that's funny all right well that's gonna do it for us this week next week we will cap off our halloween spooky spooktober trilogy with a scary movie from the 70s the exorcist this movie is 50 years old. There's a new sequel in theaters, and I have never seen the original Exorcist. Have you? I've never seen
1: it either. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, a- another movie, I saw it was on Max. I was like, okay, it's on Max. It's October. We've got to do it. So I am very, very much looking forward to watching The Exorcist and talking about that next week with you, James. Until then, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Tested Time Pod on Facebook X, Instagram threads. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe on all the podcast platforms. Hey, by the way, we're on YouTube now. We have a YouTube channel. Our our friend Mark J. Parker, when he was on talking about A Night at the Rocksberry, he was saying how his show is on YouTube. And I was like, he's right. That's a good idea. And we are now on YouTube. So if you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, like and subscribe on YouTube. I always wanted to say that. I'm so cool now. But yeah, we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Goodbye.